0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We've been digging into uh, Ajahn Sushito's book. Those of you who are reading along, you don't have to, but you can download this book for free. Uh, Gabe printed up little slips of paper. You probably saw that at the table in the lobby. And that has the website. You can take that home where you can download the book if you want. It's for free. It's just uh, because it's written by a Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sushito. He's a British man who's also a Buddhist monk and a very popular teacher now in in the West, although he had started his practice in Thailand. He went there as a young man. He's been a monk now, I think, 40 years or so. So a long time practicing as a Buddhist monk and uh, he's really a wise person. And we're just using the book as sort of a resource as we take, several months, to reflect deeply about this form. And I mentioned last week, if you weren't here, that there's something sacred about even the shape, even the you know, the ritual of sitting down on a chair, sitting down on a cushion, kneeling down on a bench, in some relatively uncluttered corner of your apartment or home, maybe with an altar, maybe a plant or an open window, that... Where the surroundings are soothing or uplifting, whatever that means for you, and it will be different for each of us to have that place. And that place in our apartment, in our home, represents, sort of as a symbol, it represents our practice, or even better, it represents our intention to be unafraid, to be clearly aware and unafraid, to be kind, to be interested, to be sort of discerning in a In a more elemental way, it's like this now. Instead of, you know, we have other symbols like our television set or our computer, you know, or other things in our home, in our world that represent something else like being swept away, being distracted, being obsessed, whatever it might be. And that would be different for each of us. You know, for some person it might be their little electronic device or their partner or their car or their idea of a vacation or their idea of becoming somebody, their career or whatever it is. These places where we tend to get swept away, politics, even activism, as important as it is for us to learn how to show up in the world and to make this world a better place, it can also be a place where people avoid seeing and feeling what. Is there to feel and see. Like we keep busy. So we can keep busy doing all kinds of things that are on some level good, raising your children, you know, doing this, doing that. But if the intention is to just avoid feeling what we feel, then you may do good for other people, but you're not really taking care of yourself. So, one of the things to this week and, and for the next couple of weeks, you know, we've been talking, I've been talking at least, about this experience of embodiment, and it's related to the form of sitting meditation and learning to honor and really see it as the most important thing. And it's, you know you know, it's not just the formal sit that's the most important thing, but the formal sit reminds us of the most important thing, which is... Being disconnected, being distracted, being swept away, being superficial is the most dangerous thing in the world, right? Because all the terrible things we see out there in the world, they arise because people are disconnected, superficial, swept away by their greed, the conditioning, the habit energies of greed, anger, and delusion. So we should see in our own heart and in everybody else's heart These are the most dangerous things. So what's the thing that's going to save us? Well, learning how to be right in the middle so that if greed, anger, and delusion gets triggered, there's going to be this presence of wisdom, this fearless, clear, kind force in the mind that understands, oh, that's greed. And it leads to hell you know, acting it out, getting identified with it, leads to difficult states. Oh, that's hatred. That's fear. That's denial. That's disconnection. That leads to stress. That leads to hell. That leads to negative, unwholesome states of mind. Honey, don't go there. There's only one thing that can reveal that, and that's that, what we call mindful awareness, but you can call it whatever you want, but you'll see, I mean, the important thing is to uncover it in your own heart. This, you could call it a capacity or this potential to be clearly aware, a, an unwavering or a, a stable mirror-like clarity in the mind That that isn't about judging, it isn't about putting some spin not trying to manipulate you or anybody. It's just saying, it's like this now. So when there's greed in the mind, lust in the mind, neediness in the mind, envy in the mind, jealousy in the mind, then there's that simple, clear, let's call it a voice, but it's not really a voice, but that says, honey, this is unskillful. When it's like this, this is what gets set in motion when the mind is seen in this way, identified in this way, then this is what gets set in motion. And the same thing, like that wisdom can see kindness. The wisdom can see joy or gratitude or contentedness. can see generosity. And then when it sees one of those wholesome states, wholesome frames, then it sees, honey, this is good. Things are becoming lighter. This sets in motion freedom. This sets in motion a sense of connection, a sense of belonging, a sense of ease, a sense of lightness. This doesn't go to hell, right? But most of the time we're just, I mean, it's sort of sad to say this, but we're basically... Beings, like this is what the Buddha said after his awakening some 2,500 years ago, you know, what really moved him to teach for 45 years is he, he reflected after his deep insight, sitting there, he spent, I forget now, I think it's 45 days, near the tree where he had his night, this sort of famous night under the Bodhi tree, this tree of awakening, and his mind woke up. He saw deeply the nature of the mind, and the nature of not just his mind, but just mind, the mind in general, and then in the days after, just sort of integrating the insight, he reflected and he saw like beings, i.e. you and me, wanting to be happy, but doing exact like in my pursuit, in your pursuit of happiness, doing exactly what leads to stress. And not only leads to stress, but sets in motion suffering for others. But in trying to be happy, I may take what's not given. I may justify manipulating you or ignoring your suffering because of my need for what I think I need. There's another, I forget who said it, but we're like children who, while wanting safety, wanting happiness, take delight in the causes for suffering. You know? While wanting to be free from suffering, our childlike mind is still in the habit of delighting in the causes for suffering. And it's true, isn't it? It's like what do we allow or what is it that our mind obsesses Is it a cause for happiness or a cause for suffering? And yet one more time our mind obsesses thinking oh if only then I'll be happy. And You know just fill in the blank. If only my partner's this way or if only I had this body. If only the world became this way then I would be happy. How many times have we had this if only? And then some of the time we actually get the if only. If only i could grow up. Well, we've grown up, you know, <laughs> like that movie Big with uh, Tom Hanks, you know. He wanted to be big, and then he became big, and then he wanted to be small again, you know, boy, little boy again. You know, we wanted to get married. Some of us got married. We wanted a car, and then we got a car, you know. We wanted to be somebody, and then we became somebody. And but there's always another thing to become. So this, this form we have, this ritual we have of sitting meditation, we're learning to put all that down and we're learning to pay attention to the experience, for most of us, the experience of embodiment. But it might be hearing, it might be feeling the body generally, it might be feeling specific sensations in the body, might be watching, observing the movement of the breath in the body. But we're taking refuge in the here and now. We're using the experience of body to take refuge in the here and now. And then it's like it gives a window on all of the conditioning of the mind. Right? Like there's, It's hard to study the skillful and unskillful conditioning of the mind unless we have something to contrast it. So if we, do, if we take up this training to be intimate with the body, not, not the idea of the body, Not the image of the body, but the sensations of the body in and of themselves. The sensations of breathing, the experience of hearing, even seeing. So just the five physical senses, just the sense world as it is. Not our idea or image, but seeing as seeing, hearing as hearing, sensation as sensation. If we train and the mind learns how to be stable and clearly aware and not reactive, then as our mental conditioning continues to play itself out, it stands out as something happening in the present moment. Right? We can see it. Like Because we have that stability of awareness of the body, we see what the mind is doing. It's judging. It's hating. It's wanting. It's fearing. It's disconnecting. It's going into la-la land. Spinning in some dreamlike state, right? We see it. So, the form of practice, this, you know, because often, like in our images, like the statues we have, the image that we're trying to create for ourselves is this stability, like this fearless, fearlessly kind presence, this willingness to be honestly connected with the way it is. And what we learn, and the reason we are so grateful and so devoted to this form and to the practice is because it delivers the goods. There's really no way to not become wise if you engage this process. Try it. There is just no way to not grow up in a sort of spiritual sense if you sit down and you literally put down your world right so you're not a mother when you sit down and you do the formal practice you're not a father you're not a citizen you're not male female or some other sort of gender identification that you have for yourself there's just the sensitive heart being sensitive to the way it is like when you feel your body now like just tune into sensation right in my case, like, is there anything about the sensations of sitting that's 58 years old, or male, or white? So I'm not saying these forms, these identities aren't important. They're very real in this relative world. And we need to take responsibility for them. But the thing is, we are just replicating all of our ignorance over and over again So we need to step outside of those conditioned loops. We need to, in a sense, go to zero. And the way we do that is we learn to put everything down. And then to the degree we could put everything down and just be sensation being known, seeing being known, hearing being known, thinking being known, thoughts are just thoughts, sounds are just sounds, sights are just sights, sensations. Then when those conditioned, those conditioned patterns that have momentum when they show their face, when they act themselves out, present themselves, then we can start to see them for what they are. Impersonal, changing, skillful or unskillful. We start to see them without being swept away, without being identified or attached with them. That's why we're so devoted to this form. That's why we see that it's like our life depends. Happiness, well-being literally depends on this capacity. Uncovering this capacity to not be swept away by our conditioning. Otherwise, we're quite literally um, limited. Our life is limited to the conditioning that we have. I've kidded us all about like You know, my case growing up in the late 50s and 60s, you know, think about, you know, just even if you're younger, just studying history, like, what does that mean? Like, what kind of mind conditioning in the mind is there, having been literally programmed by that culture that was doing the programming in those years, in your years, you know, whatever you're sort of the lineage of your parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents, right? Being one generation after another, passing down, reconditioning the children with their values, their understanding, the limitations of their worldview. And now we're... Now, it's not all bad. There's some wisdom there, but it's limited. So we've created this form, the, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, but not just Buddhist tradition, just to, through human history, this form of sitting down, sitting up. Of course, it's not dependent on sitting still, but it's easier to kind of get a sense of what this practice is about. Sitting down in an upright way, in a relaxed way, and using this experience of embodiment to cultivate this clarity and the stability of mind. And maybe you even felt this at the end of the sit. And I'll save some time to hear from folks. Maybe you even felt this at the end or somewhere in the sit. This, It it feels like stability, like steadiness of mind, right? Because the mind, and it may only last for a few moments. Some of you who are more experienced, maybe longer, a couple minutes. Maybe even a whole sit sometimes where the mind has made peace or More accurately, the mind is moment by moment making peace with the conditions that are showing up. The sights, the sounds, the sensations, the emotional content, mental content that's showing up. Moment by moment, the wisdom in the mind isn't confused by it, isn't disturbed by it, isn't thinking that it needs to be different than it is. That's what leads to that stability. And it really feels... Like there's something in the mind and body that feels solid. That's why we have words like, yeah, I felt really centered or I felt really grounded. Because when that's strong, it's uh, unmistakable. You notice it. Because it feels, something feels unmovable, unshakable in the heart, mind, body. But it's not like you couldn't move. Because you can have that feeling even in motion, we learn it maybe in sitting practice, but we'd like to live our whole life that way, which means while we're moving. So it's not actually about not moving your body. The stability, the solidity, the groundedness is a quality of the heart or mind. Although we train holding the body still, it isn't dependent on that stillness. And then with that stability, with that steadiness, then all of the neurotic movements of the mind, the hunger of the mind, right, which means all of the patterns of aversion and irritation and agitation and restlessness and wanting things to be different and wanting to control and wanting to become somebody, all of that movement really stands out in contrast with that stability of equanimity, the stability of that clear, kind, presence that has this woven sort of into the fabric of that state of mind is a kind of contentedness. Like, honey, I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't need anything, and I don't need to get rid of anything. So then, because of the momentum of the neurotic stuff, it's going to keep moving, but now that now the mind sees it. In contrast, when we're when the mind is identified with neurotic activity, then it's really hard to see neurotic activity for what it is. It's like when you're moving, it's hard to notice something moving. Have you ever seen like uh, those hunting dogs, the uh, the pointers or whatever they're called? You know when they're when they're sort of finding something, they hold perfectly still. Or a cat or any kind of animal that's trying to figure out what's going on, they just freeze. Because it's a lot easier to see what's moving when you're not moving. And this has a spiritual implication too. Like if we want to see what's moving in our heart, in our mind, the conditioned activity, the habit energies then we need something that's not moving. So in Buddhism, we call that wisdom or equanimity. Or you could say the wisdom of non-attachment or the wisdom of non-reactivity. That's how we learn about reactivity. right? Now, it's not going to be... Well, in some sits, it might be relatively developed where there's like, let's say, a profound for a while because the forces of the mind have come into this beautiful balance and there is what we call samadhi this steadiness of mind and then in that place even little ripples of neurotic activities like even the little ripple of i really like the stability of mind right now that's not deeply neurotic to have that thought but even that kind of thought will stand out like as not helpful Un- unnecessary. It's like taking the stability of mind personally doesn't support the stability of mind. It actually undermines. Because if, if my mind more and more gets identified with the thought like, God, I'd like to be somebody who always has the stability of mind. I bet my stability of mind is better than your stability of <laughs> mind. But you know, you lo- your stability of mind looks pretty good. But it's probably not as good as it looks. Because that's intimidating to me. You know, so I, now I've got to create a story about how you just are acting like you have stability mind. And then all of a sudden, I don't have any stability mind anymore. Right? And this is how it goes. But then eventually we'll see, oh my God, my mind's all wigged out. Right? I've lost it. And there will be a very appropriate quality of forgiveness and a kind of humility, a willingness to start over. How do I do this again? Oh, yeah. I need my training ground. So I'm going to develop this relationship with the present moment that we call samadhi, the stability of mind. I'm going to develop it with what's easy for me to develop it with. For some of you, it means coming back to the breath or feeling the whole body or hearing or some combination of what's available and what our mind is relatively skillful at being intimate with. And we practice, we cultivate that moment-by-moment moment intimacy. And it involves two things. The skill of connecting, where we take the attention that wants to get lost in thought, that wants to get caught in some reactive pattern, and we direct it back to the breath, back to the body, back to hearing, back to the here and now, whatever training ground you're going to use. Right, So there's Two muscles, let's call them muscles. One muscle is the muscle of connecting, taking the attention that wants to do what's seductive, compare, judge, worry, plan, become, right? We take that attention and we say, no, honey, connect with something ordinary like the buttocks on the chair, that, that ordinary experience of pressure. This is home base. This is the way it is. Can we come home to this feeling? Can we be content with this? So there's the connecting, and then there's the sustaining. And they're kind of two different muscles. Connecting is sort of this directing, and it can take a lot of energy, because if there's something really seductive, you've got to say, you know, it's the same thing like if the cat really wants to scratch over here, you know, sometimes we have to be pretty forceful. No, this, this is just not going to happen. You got this option, you got this option. But that's not an option, right? And, and there's this real parental energy. No, no, no. And, and persistent, like no, 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 no. It doesn't help to yell, but we're really persistent about, no, this is not going to, this is not allowed. This is not going to happen. This is the safe place. This is where it's okay. This is where, this is your training ground. This is where you get to play. This is where you get to hang out. And then the, the sustaining muscle is a little bit more nuanced because what actually, you can't use that forceful. I'm connecting, you know. It's like a, I'm putting my attention here, but the sustaining is a little different. You actually have to encourage the mind to be interested. So sometimes, like for the sustaining, sustaining your attention with the breath sustaining your attention with the experience of embodiment, you have to encourage the mind to be interested. So ask a question, honey, how does it feel? How does the breath feel coming in? Honey, how does the breath feel going out? How does it feel in the body? Well, can that be okay? Can the heart soften? Can the mind soften? Can the body soften? Can you put down defensiveness? So you have to keep the mind in the game. To sustain this present moment awareness with your training ground. Now the more you use these two muscles of starting over, that's the connecting energy, the connecting muscle. No, not that. this. This is what we're doing right now. So part of like the definition of mindfulness training is keeping in mind what the mind should be paying attention to, not forgetting what we're supposed to be paying attention to. Oh yeah. This is what I'm doing. I'm walking. I'm doing walking meditation. I'm washing the dishes. Oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm being present with the body. I'm being present with my meditation object, my anchor, my training ground. That's the connecting energy, the starting over energy. And then the more nuanced energy of remembering that this is relevant. Remembering that actually... My life depends on learning how to be intimate, learning how to find real peace being intimate, real mental psychic healing being intimate. Right? Because when I sustain my awareness with the breath, as an example, I have to put everything down. Like all of my shame, all of my sense of not being the person I want to be, I can't be truly present with my breath, with the body, and still have the sense of not being good enough or the sense of being better than others or any neurotic sense whatsoever. All of that baggage has to be put down. So that's why it's so psychically, emotionally healing to establish samadhi, what we call samadhi, this steadiness, this intimacy, this balance of mind. It's like the, the best therapy. I'm not saying that talk therapy isn't good or other kinds of therapeutic processes aren't good. They're great. They can be very, you know, if you get the right person, it can be really useful. But the mind being absorbed, being fully present, and in order to do that, having put down of all of your identities, all of your attachments for a few moments, That kind of emotional healing, psychic healing leaves a a very strong reverberation. You feel whole and complete and emotionally healthy for a long time after a sit like that. If it's like a longer period, like many minutes, then it may reverberate that sort of sense of well-being, sense of wholesome self-esteem, natural sense of gratitude and appreciation, That may reverberate for days. If you've been on a retreat where you've had many, many moments over several days of that kind of emotional healing, then it may reverberate in your life for months. And if you don't feed it, it will eventually dissipate and you'll be back to being a neurotic self. Those old habits that have a lot of momentum will reassert themselves until we're really out of the woods, until we've uprooted the tendency to go back to the sense of separation, the sense of my neurotic self who wants to become somebody, my neurotic self who did that bad thing when I was 20 that I will never tell anybody about. right? All of those things that we're afraid are true, that maybe are true about us. All of that stuff that haunts us will reassert itself because we haven't totally uprooted the tendency to take it personally, to imagine that it refers to this permanent me who is permanently stained by having had that thought or done that thing or the inability to do this or, you know, whatever it is that haunts us. And so we want to have a sense, and really, um, yeah, I mentioned this last week, to... Cultivate a devotional energy and use whatever image or form like your you know the sitting meditation the form of sitting meditation to remember oh yeah I really value this stability of mind and I really value what this allows like seeing what I would otherwise not see and seeing how impersonal it is and in seeing how impersonal it is it gets uprooted How do we go beyond these patterns of being neurotic, taking things personally, self-hatred, hating others, being afraid, being disconnected, being unaware of the biases in the mind, the prejudices that have been instilled and printed through culture? How do we not eliminate but able to see and forgive and live in awareness of these biases, these, you know prejudices that have been embedded to culture. It's through this process of waking up. There's no other way. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be a Buddhist meditator, Buddhist meditator, but you have to create enough safety. You have to create a process where you can begin to see what is hard to see. Something has to reflect that back so it can be seen. And that's what we do. What allows this to be reflected back is this intimacy. And generally, we can create or find, develop this intimacy using the breath, using the body, using just the basics of the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, touching, for the most part. Because that, if we can't develop an honest, clear, and sustained awareness with that, We're never going to see the more slippery stuff of the mental conditioning, the habit energies of the mind. These biases, these tendencies toward fear, towards greed, toward hate. No way. They're just too subtle. But if we do our work and we develop this ongoing intimacy, ongoing presence, ongoing stability, balance with The physicality, the seeing, the hearing. Seeing's pretty hard. Hearing and sensing sensations for most people are easier. Because seeing is very related to concepts. Like it's very hard to see Greg without thinking Greg. You know, when I see the form, the shape, it's just like my perception, my concept, my story of who this guy is, it dominates. And I stop noticing that it's just seeing being known. But still, it's good to train with seeing. But hearing is a little less seductive and sensations as seductive as it is. So let me just say one more thing before I open it up for conversation. And this is around pain. Because when we we start to appreciate how important the experience of embodiment is to train the mind for the steady presence... So that we can see what's more slippery, all of the mental conditioning. And this big gorilla shows up, which is, My body hurts, right? And part of the reason it hurts is we've been spending most of our life practicing not feeling our body. So then we're holding tension day after day, and it gets chronic. And then when we finally decide to be aware of the body, we feel the history of being tight, and it's unpleasant right? and Parts of the body feel really numb, disconnected, flat. Other parts are like twisted steel, burning. And then we go, well, why would I want to do this? You know, why would I want to be intimate to the body? And then distraction makes so much sense, like a good TV show or a good book or conversation or eating, like anything but to feel my body. Or like, I'm willing to feel my body if a skilled masseuse is working on me or if I'm sitting in a jacuzzi or, you know, but if it's just like me sitting up and, you know, I'm not even on a lazy boy. I'm just like sitting there. (laughs) But you'll find, it's a long process for for most of us, but you'll find that actually it's not the sensations that make the experience pleasant. What makes, like, people talk about the bliss, you know, it always, like, what are they talking about? The bliss in meditation, the expanded states of mind, the peaceful states of mind, and then, you know, as a beginning meditator, someone who's been just practicing only 30 years or something, 30 lifetimes, you know, and we sit down and we realize, oh, it doesn't feel good at all. (laughs) But, you know, we're looking the wrong place. We think that it's the sensations that lead, the physical sensations that lead to the bliss, but it's not. What The bliss arises because of the quality of the mind that's relating, knowing the sensations. So the wisdom and the love that's opening, that's connecting, that's sustaining with the sensations, that's what's beautiful. So that means that you could be in, on your deathbed. You could have a decrepit, 105-year-old body with cancer, grout and you know, every illness known to humankind, but you could have a very beautiful, expanded state of mind. So the mind that's relating to the pain in the body, to the dying process, or whatever it might be, the sensations might be really unpleasant. But the mind that's relating to it is beautiful. Now here's the thing. There is never, ever anything in the way of the mind, wisdom, love, whatever you want to call it, relating to the present moment in a beautiful way. You could be having the most wonderful moment of your life or the most despicable moment, most terrible moment, most painful moment of your life, but there's nothing that could prevent your mind, what we call the mind or wisdom in the mind, There's nothing that could prevent it from relating to that moment in a really beautiful way, a really skillful way, a really forgiving way, patient way, generous way, kind way. Does that make sense? And this is why in Buddhism we say that real liberation, real happiness is unconditioned because it's not about the particular circumstances or conditions. It's about the mind that's knowing the particular conditions of that moment. And so there is never, ever anything that can prevent, stop the mind from relating in a beautiful way, a liberated way, a non-attached way, a non-greedy way, a non-fearful way, a non-hateful way. And that's what we're uncovering this capacity of the mind to be free no matter what's showing up in our life? Maybe humiliation is showing up. Or can the mind be... What does freedom look like now? You can ask yourself that question. When you do something embarrassing, the next time you spill something at a restaurant or you bump your head, or I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned in Sunday night group, I did a memorial service a number of weeks ago, and I realized at the end, after standing in front of a bunch of people, Talking about death and loss, and then I realized my fly was open the whole time. Was, my shirt was tucked in. it wasn't even like this, you know I was, <laughs> I was dressed up, you know and, uh, and it was just really interesting as I was walking away from the memorial service, just noticing like how, yeah, my mind could have easily. It like wanted to because of the conditioning make a story about it. Like, what an idiot. Or did they see it? Or, you know, whatever, all the different ways. But my mind realized, like, why? You know, now it's zipped up. (laughs) I mean, it's like whatever happened there, (laughs) whatever people thought, you know, whatever judgments arose, that's already happened. Right? And so the question is, what kind of reverberation right now is skillful. Well, understanding is skillful. Forgiveness is skillful. Letting go is skillful. You know, neurotically wondering how many people saw that or neurotically wondering what they thought about that, what kind of judgment. doesn't. It's like if, if the mind's aware, it won't go there because it's like what value is there in that spinning? And this is really the kind of freedom the Buddha said, like, the mind understood that it could relate in an expanded, non-neurotic way to an ordinary situation that happens. Right? And these things, you know, as we get older, our mind is just less clear. It's like, oh yeah, go to the bathroom, and then you zip up. <laughs> it's not rocket science, but it seems to be relatively easy to forget. <laughs> and it's like, I noticed, because it's not like an isolated situation. (laughs) Now everyone's always going to be looking. That's why I I don't tuck in my shirt. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, there's been a lot of Alzheimer's in my, my family. You know, my mother died of Alzheimer's, and several of my aunts and uncles have had it. And it's like, you know, it's so easy to sort of panic ourselves. But it might be that way, right? So... Can that be okay? It's like, like, could our minds relate? Let's say we get early onset dementia, or those of you who are already in that, you know, those decades where it wouldn't be called early onset. It's like, what would freedom look like in that situation? What would it look like? Would would that be possible to be free in that situation? Earlier this afternoon, I was with somebody, one of our teachers who um, is in hospice care now, and um, yeah, she has a lot of wisdom, and some of you maybe have seen Nicole Terrace uh, give talks here at the center and over the years, and uh, and she just has a lot of space, and it's really hard. I mean, her lungs just constantly filling with water, needing to have them drain, but you know, it's... Writing is on the wall, and uh, and just uh, like well, yeah, it's really hard. And and the thing that one of the things she's really been realizing is that the fear, you know, that it's basically a kind of drowning, drowning experience, and that it's like such a primal thing. And to, and she's learned to forgive herself for being really afraid, like thinking her practice initially thinking that her practice should prevent fear from getting established in the mind. But fear is like, a, it's like wired in. When we're drowning, when we're, something is happening, then there's just going to be fear. But see, even that, even when fear and terror arises, wisdom could say, oh yeah, that's okay too, because that's how it is sometimes. Like when the lungs are filling with water, then fear will arise. That's how it is. And it was great. I, th- not today, but early when we were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and she was really, uh, a couple of months ago I think it was, when she was talking about this and, and really realizing that it's okay for fear to arise and giving permission. Like I can be okay with that too. That sort of primal, that like an animal being really afraid. Oh, that's like that. It's like being really cold and not wanting to shiver. You know? Or being really, really hungry and not like being a little aggressive with the food. Yeah, it's just like that's that's what the creature does. And there's a way for wisdom to sort of understand that. And this is the unconditioned freedom that we want our practice and our sitting meditation practice to represent so we don't forget it. That there is this possibility. And this is the real, like, to be a student of someone like the Buddha means that we have some sense, some intuitive sense, of this unconditioned freedom. No matter what's happening, the heart can be free. The heart can be grounded in love and non-attachment. No matter. Now, that doesn't mean we can manifest that freedom. It just means we intuitively sense its possibility. And we're interested in moving in that direction. And the interesting thing is, even not being able to manifest that freedom all the time in my life, even when I'm instead acting out suffering, I'm okay with it because I know I'm on the path. Like Even though I can't be free now, I know I'm on the way to being able to be free even in this kind of situation that's sort of pushed my buttons in this moment and so I'm losing it to some degree and acting out and getting tight. But I know it's okay because I trust the path. Like 10 years ago, there would be a lot more suffering than there is now. Maybe even two years ago, a lot more. Than... So I, the mind intuits the path. So we can have a lot of freedom even when we're not at the end of the path. Because we know the mind, it's like the mind has the scent of this unconditioned freedom. And it doesn't matter if I still get caught. Because I know we're, The system is moving in that direction. And that's why there's a lot of joy. It's really hard work, this practice of being in the middle, being more and more honest, more and more aware, awake, sensitive. It's really, really difficult. I think it's the most difficult thing. But it's so liberating. And a lot of gratitude, a lot of appreciation arises. It's one of the great things about a job like mine, where I talk to people about practice, as I hear over and over again how much gratitude people have in their practice. And it's so, it's really inspiring to hear. But let's take the last five or seven minutes to hear from a few folks. And you could talk about your own relationship to your sitting or your just generally your practice of mindfulness. Of course, any questions you have about what I've said tonight. So what comes to mind? Remember, point the mic like this, not up and down, and then pretty close. So who'd like to begin? What is your relationship like to practice or how has it evolved over time? Words of devotion about your practice that you'd like to share with the group? Oh, you fell in love? I will start with Don and then we'll go back to Doug. Well, Neil, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Mm. Me first? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm Don, and um, at one uh, time in my meditation that you were talking about, I think I went a whole period with... Uh, being attuned to the breathing and the sitting. And then uh, that seemed to dissipate. And now when I sit, um, I just go completely right out um, into la-la land. And uh, what I've been doing um, is doing like a 30-minute, I get up in the morning and do a 30-minute uh, walking meditation. And then afterwards, um, I think I'm awake enough to do a sitting meditation. And I'm right out. Again into Lala Land. So, and tonight I th- had a little bit, but then again, I'm just constantly going into these dream states. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky place. Even for very experienced meditators, it's very easy to get into these trance-like states, and they're very seductive because the mind can feel very relaxed in those states, and it's they're often pleasant. And so, being in that state is like. And it generally arises from an aversion to being intimate. And like I said, wisdom practice is unpleasant. A lot of it is unpleasant. um, Because we're opening to uh, the triggers, basically. And we're feeling the conditioned mind. We're seeing and feeling the conditioned mind. So one thing you can do is practice with the eyes open. I don't know if you've been doing that. And maybe working with instead of being aware of the body, working with seeing and hearing as your anchor. Right? And just acknowledging that sort of and then also like get interested in your posture because sometimes these grooves, like always going to a dreamlike state or a trance like state, it's it's like a routine. And you want to break the routine. So if the body's in a particular posture, then to with very refined attention, cultivate that noble alignment to the spine, where the head just is floating there. And there's just this beautiful sense of integrity and alignment, even up, right up to the top of the head, just this beautiful line of energy, right? And this cultivating this deep respect for clarity, connecting with reality, whether it's the in breath. Or seeing as just seeing, hearing is just seeing, and really work on that value. But remember, Don, walking practice is fine. And through this phase, if you're if you need to do more walking, forty five minutes of walking and then a shorter sit, whatever works. Yeah, because you can get a whatever you can get in sitting meditation, you can get in walking practice. And different people will have different energetic systems, so more or less walking, more or less sitting, depending on what's good medicine for you. And it might shift, where then later you're not doing much walking practice. Sitting works for you. You can sustain a kind of clear, balanced attention in the sitting posture. Yeah, thanks, Don. Pass it back to Doug. Straight back. Um, Well, this morning, actually, I had uh, first... Big insight that I've had since I've been meditating, which isn't all that long. And that is uh, this. the end of this week I had an uh, issue at work that left me feeling pretty bad. And when I was meditating, I could s- suddenly got the clarity that the, the issue and the reaction were totally separate events. And the reaction was coming from some uh, relation to something that must have been stressful long before I can remember. But all I know how to do is to constantly recreate that, those reactions. I have no way to actually react to the situation itself. I'm just... I'm, I, I just have to sort of relive something that happened that I, I can't even remember. And it, it, that was a tremendously liberating moment. So I just yeah. thought I would share that in that process. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. And, and, and in the scene here, we call that Dharma pain. Like I said, when the more you cultivate the stability of mind, samadhi, the more that... <clears throat> ancient pain, all the sort of unresolved trauma, unresolved fear, unresolved need, desire, craving, it just starts to show itself at its own pace. And if we're uh, unaware, then we're going to think that the way you're looking at me right now, like all that fear, we're going to say, oh, because she's got those evil eyes at me. You know, We'll create a story that The reason I'm feeling this intense feeling, because we don't understand why we'd be feeling this. But the more we practice, the more like the insight you had, Doug, we realize that this uneasy feeling, this fear, this whatever emotion it is, it's its own thing. And it's not about what's happening on the surface of my life. It may, my mind might want to connect the two, but they're not really connected. And we really see the path ahead, which is, to get interested in that yucky feeling, basically, and to learn how to make peace with it, to let it be what it is, so we're no longer running from it, and we're no longer telling deluded stories about it. We're learning how to be with it. And then the interesting thing we find is we can live our life, we can be a parent, a citizen, a good person, and feel a lot. And it's not even our own pain. Sometimes what we tune into is just the suffering of the, all wor- the whole world, all beings. But somehow our heart has the capacity or wisdom has the capacity to be a loving, happy, somebody who can laugh and feel the suffering of the world. They're not like, yeah, they're not two things. The heart has this amazing capacity to feel everything. But, uh, you know, it's a, for most of us a gradual, Process to be that open, undefended. It's 8.30, so we have to leave it here. Next week, I'm going to save more time. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths. And appreciate the silence. Feel the body. Really grateful for the community, for these ancient teachings, and for all the people before us, all the women and men who did their practice in their busy lives, and now it's our turn to do the best we can and to be part of the causes for real peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.